we're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and we've been back for a number of messages now. Uh, and I've been working on a message in conjunction with the verse that we are now on, in, and I've been going a lot through Daniel and so forth. And uh, before I preach that message, I want to give a message on another book, and then we'll get back to that one, uh, Lord willing, next week. Uh, and that book is, and we're going to kind of look at it from beginning to end. I don't know, anybody hear our message when I went through the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, to the very end of chapter 22? We did that on a, yeah, it was, we did it, had a great time. A lot of people were betting against me that there's no way Joe's going to get through Revelation in one setting. And we did it, and it was on a, we did it on our podcast. And I think it was, a, was it a live podcast? I think it was, yeah, it, was a live it was a live podcast. Uh, so it wasn't something I could fix later, you know. <laughs> but God, God met us, and it worked out. We got in, did it an hour with, I think, maybe 30 seconds or so to spare. I don't remember exactly how much. And, uh, and a lot of people got a whole lot out of that because we covered so much ground. And you saw how the whole book of Revelation fit together in one setting. If you haven't seen that, go to our uh, Facebook page, Blessed Hope Facebook page, or go to our, I'm sorry, Good Fight page and find that and, and listen to that. Well, I want to do not the same thing, but I want to go through the book of Hebrews. But that, I wasn't even using notes. I was just, boom, chapter 1-1 one, one, and just went through 22. Here, uh, we're going to slow down, and we're not going to look at every, you know, go through all kinds of verses. We're going to go through a lot of verses in the book of Hebrews. And this is a message that we need to heed today. Uh, and the name of this message is called Heeding Hebrews. And I want you to be challenged by it because when people ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is, you know, well, are they talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, you know? Because if I'm talking about the Old Testament, I'm looking at anything from Genesis, not just the book of beginnings, but all the typologies of Jesus, Joseph being a picture, oh, it's just so rich, you know, or Isaiah, you know, Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. Uh, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to choose. It's like you can't choose with your kids, right? Which is your favorite kid, you know, because you love them all, you know, and they're, they're different, you know. But also, uh, if you ask me the New Testament, it depends what book I'm enamored by at the moment sometimes, you know. Uh, but for me, Hebrews is one of those books I sometimes give that answer because it is so exalting of Jesus. And then it is so, and, it, and there's so rich in typology showing these beautiful pictures from the Old Testament of Jesus and how Jesus is superior to everyone and anything. And then yet there's all these practical warnings about abiding in the faith, amen, continuing uh, that, that, that meet us where we're at to help us in our walk as well in light of who he is. Uh, I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll say Romans. Sometimes I'll say the Gospel of John. A lot of times the Gospel of John. Uh, book of Revelation, of course. You know, these are all a lot of my favorite books. And, and I have a lot of favorite epistles like you do as well. James and 1 John and, you know, or I love First and Second Peter, on and on Jude, you know. So many awesome books. So God's Word is so rich. And when you start trying to answer that question, you think of the different books, you start to realize what a precious jewel we have in each of the books of the Bible. They're all precious uh, I don't want to get any of the apostles upset as I'm picking different books out here, so I'm going to cover them. I'm always kidding. <laughs> Got to see them in heaven someday. No, I'm just kidding, uh, which is true, though. Anyway, uh, we want to look at the book of Hebrews, packed with one of the reasons I think the book of Hebrews is so awesome is, and that's what I want to cover first, is the book of Hebrews radically exalts Jesus. I mean, in a way that other books of the Bible don't. They all exalt Jesus in some way, you know? Even Esther, which doesn't even mention the name, you know, God one time. It's all about God's sovereignty and providence, amen? And his plan for Israel, and it's just heavy. But uh, the book of Hebrews very specifically lets us know that Jesus is above and, and better than anyone. And the context of why he's emphasizing this is the Jewish believers in the first century i.e. written to Hebrews, right? Hebrew Christians were on the verge, some of them, of defection because of threats of persecution. That's very, very clear that they were being persecuted. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read about some who had lost their homes and were imprisoned uh, and talks about how they were visiting the prisoners who were there because of their faith. Uh, he, some are saying, well, there was no martyrdom at that time because he says that none of you have resisted yet to the point of blood. That doesn't mean there's no martyrdom. Because, of course, everybody that's receiving the letter didn't resist the point of blood yet because they're still alive. Doesn't mean others didn't, you know. Think about that, you know. 
Uh, so the ones he's, they hadn't yet resisted the point of blood where they gave their lives yet because they're still living. They received the letter. doesn't mean there weren't several people who had died for their faith at that time. So there was a, there was persecution that came from the Romans and the, and the other Jews, the religious Jews. Uh, and if you go through the book of Acts, you see that. You see the, the Gentile powers and you see the Jewish powers often working together. You see, even see them working together in Jesus' arrest, you know, when he's arrested. I mentioned it said that the soldiers were a Roman cohort in chapter, uh, in the Gospel of John. So last Wednesday, we went through what that probably means there. Uh, so, but the Jews were, you know, the ones that were leading that charge. And then eventually he was handed over to the Romans, Pilate and so forth. Now it's interesting when you look at these different texts uh, in Hebrews, because the Holy Spirit is basically using the author of Hebrews which was probably not written by Paul, you know, although there's some things that indicate it might have been. Paul says he always puts his name with his letters, doesn't here, you know. Uh, and then there's no scholars today that modern evangelical scholars that believe Paul wrote Hebrews, you know. Sometimes I'll say Paul and I'll correct myself or, who, or Luke or we don't know who wrote it, you know, for sure. But then I say we do know who wrote it. Definitely we know who wrote it. God wrote it, amen. And that's what counts. And this book really encouraged the early church during persecution to stand up under that persecution. That's a message we need today. Amen? <laughs> we need to be encouraged to persevere in the faith. Amen? And that means we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Ooh, that sounds like a verse like right out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Amen? Because persecution is going to grow. Uh, you see the hostility toward the Christian faith right now. I mean, it's all in the media and everything else and, and movies and music and so forth. Popular culture, which I call the culture of death often, has been anti-Christ. We know millions of babies have been killed. And I always say, if you can kill millions of babies and have no remorse, it's easy to kill people you don't like, like Christians. That's, it's just got to be legalized, you know. And Jesus said there'll come a time when the Christians will all be hated because of his namesake. In Revelation chapter 13, 5 through 7, it talks about how mass Christians, and all the way through verse 10, and then following those who don't take the mark of the beast, will be killed. So we don't know when exactly that's going to happen, but right now it's kind of crazy because the Bible talks about that mark of the beast on your right hand or forehead that people have to take to buy and sell. And we've been saying for years that's coming, and now you have this whole system being devised to where you have to, and we, we have a whole message that the, that the, uh, you know, the vaccination is not the mark of the beast because some Christians, a lot of Christians say, oh, it's the mark of the beast. But what we are also saying is watch out because they're trying to implement a system, which I'm going to do a whole message on pretty soon. Bill Gates has worked with MIT and Rice University, funded these projects whereby they're making chips that will keep track whether you have the vaccination yet or not and whether you have your booster shots there up or not or your, you know, and so forth. No kidding. And where's that headed, guys? You know, sometimes we think one day, oh, the Antichrist will rise. I'll say, hey, everybody, I got a new thing, this thing you're going you're, you're gonna to take. to. Well, guess what? Satan always eases into things, typically. And now the world's being eased into. And now we have uh, many leaders around the world, Australia, elsewhere, saying that, that the COVID is a great opportunity. This is bringing a co one, the health minister over in Australia said that, that, that COVID is, is bringing the United States into the new world order. That's the words, you know. So you have a lot of this stuff being used in that way. And we don't know because there's birth pains, right? They get strong and then they, weak, they get stronger, weaker, stronger. But then they get closer and closer together and more and stronger and stronger, right? We're definitely seeing some birth pains right now. And we need to be alert. And you, the message you have throughout Scripture is, of course, you need to hold on to the Lord. You have this battle between gods, between I, I've, I've gone through, in fact, I was a few Thursday, a few Wednesday nights ago, I went through all the Egyptian gods that were being attacked through each and every plague that God brought upon Egypt. Whether it was Hopi or whether it was Ra or whether it was Horus or whether it was Isis and how these different things that were being judged were things that they worshipped in association or the gods that they worshipped were associated with these things. And the Lord was saying, I'm the one true God. And his point was to say, show I'm the one true God. I am that I am. And that salvation is only in him. And then after the exodus, when that took place, you had Jews and Egyptians leave who found out Yahweh is the one true God. Amen. So he always wants to reveal who he is to you if you're willing. 
you know. And through the book, Old Testament, you can continue to go after they inherited the promised land, you know. Then they are tempted to go back to these idol gods. And then you have Isaiah and other prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth, the minor prophets as well, all exclaiming that Yahweh is the one true God. Don't worship these false gods. They won't bring you salvation. In fact, Isaiah gives this incredible polemic. He's an apologist for the one true God through his creation and through his prophetic words and so forth, uh, his salvation history, him establishing Israel and so forth, showing that Yahweh is indeed the one true God. And you see this throughout the Old Testament prophets. And then when you get in the New Testament, you also see this war. You see Paul saying, you guys don't even know what you worship, you know, to the, the Greek, the Stoics and the Epicureans and all these the philosophers and, you know, the, 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 those who are held to the, the mystery religions. And you read Acts chapter 17 and Paul says, you worship, you're demon worshipers. That's the Greek word he uses. By that time, it meant religious. But Paul knew what he was saying. He knew what the word meant because in Corinthians, he talks about the, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice. They don't sacrifice to God, but to demons. And then he told them about, you have this inscription to this unknown God. They had this inscription just because they didn't want to leave out a God to the unknown God. Because there were more gods as the philosophers and the, the, the pundits, or I should say the philosophers and the, and the historians and and the geographers back in those days would say there were more gods in just Athens, Greece, than all of Greece put together. And Paul's in Athens. He says, let me show you who the one true God is. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. You know, it's going to judge the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you didn't typically have a creator who created out of nothing everything. They, the, the gods were just part of like humans, like part of this, this you know, regurgitation of this cycling mass where the true God stands outside of time and space. And Paul reveals who this true God is. Then when you get to the Revelation, guess what you see? Again, the Alpha and the Omega, the God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ is above the Antichrist and all the demons that they worship in the false prophet. Amen. So there's this whole spiritual war all the way from Genesis and Exodus to the book of Revelation where God's revealing himself as the one true God and that salvation is found only in him. Well, the book of Hebrews is very interesting because He's not coming against all these false gods and saying you need to stick to the one true God like the prophets of old. He's saying you don't go back to Judaism to find your salvation in Jewish practices in the Old Testament. Now some of these things that God, the the sad thing is is people, sometimes they throw the baby out of the bathwater or they just, or they worship the bathwater, okay? Or they worship the the non-Jesus baby. And what I mean by that is there's all kinds of wonderful things in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. And we believe that all scripture is profitable. So we love to study the Old Testament, look at the pictures of Jesus and so forth. So, but what happens is, is when you leave Jesus out, you look at those things and you worship the shadow rather than the reality. These things were shadows, like the Passover service was a picture of Jesus, amen? So we celebrate the Passover. Sometimes several years here, we've had Jesus in the Passover. We do a whole Passover Seder, you know, and we see Jesus in the Passover. And so it's beautiful, but we don't, think, oh, we have to do the Passover to be right with God because we're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. So when persecution was being ramped up among the Jewish believers, believers in Mashiach, Yeshua, the Messiah, guess what was happening? They were getting persecuted by the Jews who were upset because you can imagine, I mean, a lot of the Jews didn't even want to become Christians early on. And it says why. It says they saw and they, they saw his miracles. And the, many of them believed, but it says they refused to follow him. It says because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And they feared being kicked out of the synagogues. When you're witnessing to people, let's say you're witnessing to Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses. When you're witnessing to Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses and stuff, there's a huge cultural background that they're stuck in. And they basically have to surrender everything. And say, I don't care what my whole family thinks. I'm going to follow the true Jesus. It's very hard for them to do. So you pray for them. But they have to do it. Because Jesus has to be first in our lives above everything and anything. Amen? If we don't, he that saves his life, Jesus says, will lose it. He that loses it will save it. So we need to surrender all. When I became a Christian, I didn't know any Christians. And my whole family weren't Christians. And we didn't really have a religion. I mean, I was brought up in a nominal Catholic background. But none of us were going to the church at that time when I was in junior high. And... I wanted nothing to do with it. And then when I became a Christian, I realized who Christ was. I knew it wasn't Catholicism. I started following Jesus. I knew I was going to be on the outs. Friends, family, different. We still had our religious music, you know. I had to give up my religious music. Zeppelin, you know, Rush, all those bands. That was very religious, I found out, you know. Uh, and because the occult, right, that they're into. But 
But I, I, I decided I'm doing it. I don't care and call me Jesus freak, whatever you're going to call me, you know. And by the grace of God, but how selfish that would have been. Oh, I know the truth, but I'm not going to follow the Lord. That would be cowardly. That would be the work of a coward. Oh, I'm not. No, it was not even. For me, it was like, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. Don't care what happens. And then I started to share Jesus with my family. And by the way, by the grace of God, one by one, all seven of us end up saved, you know. And then I started sharing it, you know, I'm sharing it as well with my uh, friends. And one by one, uh, friends were getting saved. And it's, it was awesome. But none of those guys, I, I mean, I would never be sharing Jesus because I didn't become Jesus. I'd be selfish. And I wouldn't be a blessing to the people I feared coming to the Lord over if I feared that. Jesus said, don't fear man, destroy the body, but fear God, destroy body and soul in hell. And we need to make sure we put Jesus first. So what's on the line here is there's persecution ramping up and Jewish believers who just love the, the Messiah, they realize he's the Messiah. They're under this heavy persecution, really heavy. And some of them had already fallen away. We're going to see in the text. And others were on the verge of falling away. But many of them were holding on to the faith. And the author of Hebrews encouraged them, don't let go. Don't let go. So what, that's one reason. I want you to understand the background. That's one reason the emphasis is on how awesome Jesus is. Amen? Jesus, is, Jesus himself says, the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, says in the Old Testament over and over again, I am the first and last, right? Right? Beside me there is no God. Over and over again. You're my witness to say the Lord, my servant, I have chosen that you may know and believe and understand that I am he before me. There is no God for me, neither is there after me. That's 43.10. 44.6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and last beside me. There is no God. You come to the New Testament. Who says he's the first and last over and over and over again? Jesus. Jesus chapter 1. We're going to get into that uh, some because we're coming up upon that uh, verse like that again in Revelation chapter 21. Jesus is the first and last. But Jesus is emphasized, and I love what the author of Hebrews does. Because if I was building an outline, and I was like, I'm going to preach a message, and I want to show Jesus is better than the priest, the priesthood, Moses, the angels, I would do it in that exact order I just gave you. Because I would build. I would build. And I'd build to he's even greater than the angels. And the author of Hebrews does it the opposite. And that's because he's God, and God knows exactly a better way to do this because God's after the jugular right from the get-go saying he's greater than the angels. He starts with that because he wants to get their attention, I believe, right away, saying look at who Jesus is. He's even greater than the angels. And that go to Hebrews chapter 1 and look at how he starts his book off. Hebrews chapter 1, he starts off this way. And he starts off by saying he's greater than the angels, but he's not just greater than the angels because he's, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say, a great angel. Or the Mormons say the spirit brother Lucifer and just... A, a, a better brother. No, he is better than the angels because he's a creator of all things. He's God. Hebrews chapter one. And I love what he does here because he works in the ministry of what he did to save us. So we don't just see he's greater because he's God, but we also see he is the savior and we need him. It's just brilliant when you look at it. Hebrews chapter one. God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his what? Son. He's saying, hey, you going to synagogue? You want to go back to synagogue? You're not going to be hearing from God then because he speaks through his son now. You got to understand this book written in that whole context. Amen? Amen. Whom he appointed heir of all things, to whom also he made the world through Christ that the world was made. Verse three, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus said, if you want to see the father, look at me. See me, you've seen the Father. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything that's held together, the atoms, and they wonder, how are the atoms hold together, man? Proton, neutron, uh, electron. How come they, they're, they're just all this power and it's held together? Well, it's by Jesus, amen? No mystery there, not when you know the scriptures. And it says, when he made, the purif when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He died for our sins. And now he's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. The angels aren't at the... Father's right hand. In fact, having become much better, look at verse four, having become much what? Better than who? Than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Okay? Uh, how did he inherit a more excellent name? Because as Paul says in Philippians chapter two, although he existed in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing because he could have just said, I'm gonna stay in the nature of God. But he says he humbled himself and became a man. Amen? And became a servant. And he died on the cross for our sins. Then it says God exalted him above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every, uh, every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Philippians chapter two. Look what he goes on to say. 
Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God, what? Worship him. Wow. If you saw angels bowing down, and we love you, Israel, but they bow down and start worshiping Israel, would you think that was right? No. Okay. Right? And any of us, they come down and they bow, we'd be like, that's wrong. He's not. Well, guess what? God doesn't just tolerate the angels worshiping Jesus. Here, he commands it. Because Jesus is God. Amen? In fact, the disciples, man, when they started to get worshiped because they're like, oh, Paul, Zeus, or, you know, Mercury, and, you know, these are these different gods, you know? Because look at how they're speaking and the miracle they just did. And they start, they ripped their clothes. Look, we're just flesh and blood like you don't worship us. Right? And when John bows down before an angel on two different occasions in Revelation chapter 19 and after that to worship him, what does the angel say? Do it not. Stop, don't, stop, don't do this. I'm, I'm an angel. Well, he basically says, I'm, I have the testimony of Jesus like you. He's an angelic being. Don't do it. And the angel's probably thinking, whoa, God. Hey, I didn't ask him to do this. Get up, John, quick. You know, you get hit by lightning or something, you know. You know, he's freaking out. He's like, probably inside, I don't know. But I know he says, stop it, you know. And, uh, and Satan, you know, asks, tells Jesus, bow down to me. I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. After he shows him the kingdoms of this world in a moment's time. And what does Jesus say? Get, get behind me. It is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. You only worship God. You only serve him. Yet God commands the angels to worship Jesus because he is God. Amen? By the way, a lot of people don't go here to show the deity of Christ, but man, to open this up to a Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Now, it's interesting, and we see Jesus worshiped over and over again. You go to Revelation chapter 5, you have myriads and myriads, the Greek for just a bunch of angels, worshiping the Father, it says, and worshiping the Lamb, giving them the same praise. And Jesus says, so will the Father, so will the Father, that the same honor that's given to the Father is given to the Son, in John chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, Lord, help me, because man, I'm on the first part, this part of the first page, and I got all this to go, and I did not mean to say all this. Okay. I'm just going to work through these passages, but this is good, and we'll get through it. We'll be done on time, Lord willing. Okay, now verse uh, 6. And when again he brings the firstborn of the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And to the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, but of the Son, what a contrast. He says, your throne, O God. The Father says to the Son, thy throne, O God. He calls him God is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness. This is the Father speaking to Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Verse 10. And you, Lord, Father speaking to Jesus, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Wow. Because Hebrews 13.8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's without beginning of days, it says in Hebrews. Okay, he's eternal. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? I mean, they have a cool role, but they're not God. And Jesus is God. So I, I just blown away because, you know, the way this message is crafted, it's like, boom, you know, right from the first chapter. He's like, if you leave after the first chapter, man, this can be stuck in your mind. I love it. I know we just, we're breaking our, so far, our, our, our Marvel series. And thank you so much for anybody and all of you guys who've been praying because I wanted our, our, our last VO, the last big VO, to happen Tuesday so we can get this thing done. Uh, and man, we ran into some problems. And I said, Tony, can you just please come in Friday? Because Tony doesn't usually come in Friday, but he works a lot of other hours and does work from home too. And uh, he did. I'm grateful for that. So we worked a few more hours and finished the VO on that. So we've got all the VOs done except maybe a couple little fixes here and there for the Marvel, the first installment. But I love the way the first one came out because it was just going to be one big one and we're getting close to getting the whole thing done. So we got all of these other parts ready to go except some work that needs to be done in one and a half of them, you know? I'm like, wow, man. And I mean, work meaning just voiceovers, pretty much all written. And I'm like, man, I looked at the first one. I can't wait for you guys to see it because I told these guys I did it in such a way where if that 
thing, if we don't get the other ones done, for some reason, this thing tells the story. Boom, you know? And that's kind of feel he's doing here. He's like, I'm getting the story out from the get-go, show you how awesome Jesus is. So he shows how he's greater than angels, the highest beings besides God. Well, who's the greatest prophet? Not from a biblical New Testament perspective, but from who do the Jews look to as their greatest prophet? Moses. Moses, Moses man. Honk if you love Jesus, right? You know, well, in New York, it might be honk if you love Moses, you know. And it's interesting because look what he does in chapter 3, the first few verses. He shows how Jesus is greater than Moses. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. So now he's saying, hey, Moses, he starts off, Moses was faithful too. So they're both faithful. But look what he does. For he has been counted worthy of what? More glory. We have better than, now we have more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has much more honor than the house. Well, what's, the, what's his analogy here? Look what he says. He goes, it gets a little deeper. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? God. By the way, who, who's he saying that Jesus is again? God. God. And what's he saying he did? Built all things. Well, you're saying he built all things. We just read Hebrews chapter one. He said it over and over again. Amen. Take Jehovah's Witnesses here, guys. They're going to be like cross-eyed, like, oh, wow, you know? And, and I never see people use, and I'm sure people do, but Hebrews three, the first four verses. In fact, you might, you can even start there with them and then go to the angels and say, hey, I'm sorry. He's not the uh, archangel Michael, you know? He's God. But guess what? For the Jewish reader, they're like, wow. He's saying that Jesus is better than Moses, just like the builder of houses, builder better than the house, and the builder of all things is God. He, and he just said he's God throughout chapter one, man. And throughout this book, we see that his, he's a better priest than the Jewish priest. Amen? And he gives a lot of arguments for that. He spends a lot of time on that, you know, Hebrews 5, you know. In fact, go to Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews 5. It's just around the bend. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifice, sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer, I'm sorry, because of it, yeah, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now this is kind of heavy. The priest would offer up sacrifices for himself. Did Jesus have to offer sacrifices for himself? No, because he was sinless. In fact, we just had a message last Wednesday where I went through a ton of scriptures on how Christ is absolutely sinless. And I won't go through them again, but I hope you can check out that message. He's sinless. On the Day of Atonement, also called, called Yom Kippur, guess what would happen? The priest would, one time a year, only one priest could go in. It was a high priest. Amen? Into the Holy of Holies. And by the way, he went in twice. The, se the second time was to make atonement for their sins. But what was the first time? Did everybody know? He went into, he, that's right, he went into to make atonement for himself because he was a sinner. So he's saying, hey, Jesus is the, is the ultimate high priest. And no one takes honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was, verse 4, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are, my, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a trippy passage over in Psalm chapter 110 where it's out of blue in the Psalms, man. And I love the Psalms because they're just like anointed. You're like, what is this, man? There's this high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of the Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, right? But Melchizedek was a priest of Salem, which is now Jerusalem, who, Mel who, who Abraham offered tithes to. He was higher than Abraham, that's one of the points here in Hebrews 2, that Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, showing that he was not as high as the king, and Melchizedek's picture of Jesus. Therefore, Abraham, just like Moses, just like the angels, are not as good and not as awesome as Jesus. Are you with me? Okay. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying, that's Jesus, and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. 
God strengthened him. Amen. He used angels as well verse, to strengthen him. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered because he became a man. Amen. And he, as a God-man, he had to go through human experience. Verse 9, and without sin at that. Verse 9, and having been made perfect, he became, that's this is awesome, he's talking about perfect in, in his obedience. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. To all those who what? Obey, obey him. You know, that's not popular today, obeying Jesus for salvation. But you know what? If you don't obey the gospel and repent and turn to him, amen, you perish. And the scriptures talk about in Hebrews, also in the book of Acts, I think, you know, chapter five or so, that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And that's going to be an emphasis in the book of Hebrews that, he, that God wants genuine followers of him. You know, you can't receive half of Jesus, as A.W. Tozer said. You can't say, hey, I received Jesus as my Savior, but I reject his lordship. You know, you have to follow the whole Jesus. Amen. So he says in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say. Well, verse 10, being designated by God as what? A high priest according to the order of who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And now they would offer up, they were sinners. Jesus is sinless. They would offer up offerings. Jesus offered up himself. They would have to do it. I'm just giving a lot of the arguments the author of Hebrews uses that we're not going to read because I want to get into other stuff as well. And they would have to offer up them over and over again, these sacrifices. Amen. Over and over again, what do you read in the book of Hebrews? He offered up one sacrifice for all to perfect us forever, amen? amen, by his blood. And it talks about how his blood is better than the blood of Aaron's blood. Aaron was, you know, martyred. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The author, Hebrews is such an amazing book. And it's interesting because who is he addressing here? Who is he, who is his audience? And that's where we have uh, some definite controversy because some will say, and I believe the scriptures are very, very clear on this, I believe Hebrews is very, very clear on this, that he's warning re regenerate or born-again believers, those who are children of God, those who are babes in Christ, those who are on the verge of defection. That's very clear. But some people don't want it to be warning believers because it warns them if they defect from the faith and they don't continue, continue the faith, that they'll be fried forever, that they'll be, uh, they'll be you know, Basically, they'll no longer be a sacrifice for sins, as the author of Hebrews says. They won't have a sacrifice for themselves anymore. Only looking for a fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. And so, since it warns about these, those, his audience falling away and perishing, those who believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, no matter what you do, or that you'll automatically person the, in the faith sometimes, they don't want this to be to genuine believers often, so they'll say, uh, he's really warning people that have a professed faith but not a genuine faith. That doesn't make sense when you read Hebrews at all. You know why? Because you know what he says? He's not talking about a said phony faith. Because you know what he keeps saying to them over and over again in Hebrews? Don't throw away your faith. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't, don't throw away your confession. In other words, it's not a faulty confidence. It's not a faulty faith. It's not a faulty confession. It's something they need to persevere in. Are you following me? Because I'm a pastor, and as a pastor, with regard to pastoral theology, if I'm talking to someone who's saved that needs to abide, right, whose name is written in the last book of life, who loves Jesus, I'm going to say, continue your faith, man. But if I think they're phony and they have a fake faith, I'm going to say, you know what, dude? You're a hypocrite. You've never really followed Jesus since I met you. I won't say it that clear, you know, just boom, come out. You know, first I'll get him in a headlock. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but I'll lovingly, I'll lovingly say to him, hey, man, you know what, since you've been coming with your wife, and since you came here, you've been in adultery, and everything else, and we've discovered it, you know, you got to repent, you got to really get saved, you know, and that fake faith you have, man, that ain't, that ain't real faith, you need to come and truly come to Jesus, we'll have a come to Jesus moment, he's not telling them to come to Jesus, he's telling them to abide in Jesus, and there's a lot of evidence that he's warning genuine believers, in fact, right here in chapter 5, right after he says concerning Melchizedek, we have a lot more to say, he tells them he can't really say as much as he wants to, even though he's going to get back to it in chapter 7 and stuff. He wants to say more. He says in verse 12, For though by this time you, have, you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you the what? The elementary principles or oracle of the oracles of God, and you have come to need what? Milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word, word of righteousness. For he is what? An infant or a babe, depending on your translation. But solid food is for the mature, who because of the pra uh, practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Amen? 
So he's addressing them here. Is he addressing them as non-believers or as babies in Christ? Babies in Christ. Christ. That's who he's addressing. Those who need to grow and mature. I want to talk about Melchizedek, but I can't say as much as I want to say because you guys are still on baby food. If you feed your baby baby food, they say, well, your baby doesn't really exist because they're only on baby food. They're not really a a, a child, your child. No, we're talking about real children here. In fact, in Hebrews chapter six, he says, therefore, verse one, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Let's not go back to repentance, which you've already done, he's saying. Let's not start over again. Just keep following. That's the point. And grow in your faith now. So it's very, very important that we understand the context here in fact, it's interesting. Uh, we see over and over again in the, in the book of Hebrews, and, and I have so many places we could go in regard to this, but to show that these are genuine believers that he's warning. And uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to come back to this text, by the way. Go back to Hebrews 3. Or even we could go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Okay, he's warning them, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a what? Salvation. salvation. So I want you guys to know he's talking about salvation. He's not talking about loss of rewards here. It's about loss of salvation ultimately. Okay, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God testifying with them both with signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Tell me whether he's talking to believers or not, or non-believers. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my what? Brethren. My brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted uh, in that which he has suffered, it says, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he, we are his brethren. He's our God, but he became a man, so in that way we're his brethren too. And he is with us in the congregation, and he comes to our aid when we're tempted. Amen? That's not what happens with him in relationship with non-believers, you know? They need to come to Christ first. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, look how he addresses them. Therefore who? Holy brethren. brethren. Do you call non-believers at work? Hey, holy brother. (laughs) Good to see you today. Your boss is like, you know, I'm going to fire you and cusses you out. Thank you, holy brother. No, holy brethren are not non-believers, man. They're holy brethren. Amen? So he's addressing them as holy brethren. And then in verse 6, he says, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, we left off at verse 4 and 5 earlier. In verse 6, he says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we what? Hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Is he telling them to get, if you get saved? Is he saying that? No, he says, if you hold fast the confession you already have, it's so clear and only a theology that is bankrupt will seek to twist this into its image instead of, but you know what? You want to really be faithful to God and his word? You change your theology to fit God's word. Amen. Amen. And he warns genuine believers that they can fall away and they need to abide. And that's, by the way, the first three century church history taught that before Augustine came in the fourth century, who was a Manichaean Gnostic for nine or 10 years. And which we're teaching, once you're saved, you're predestined to salvation. Nothing, you, doesn't matter what you do, you are. And that was new in the church. Now, we believe we're predestined. The Bible says we're elect according to God's foreknowledge. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29. Amen. But God foreknows who's going to receive him, who's going to reject him. Okay? He's salvation for whosoever will. Jesus tasted death, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, for everyone. Amen? So anybody, by God's grace, we're all drawn. The, Jesus says, will the Father, the Son of Man be lifted up? He draw all men to himself. Amen? So when you come, you don't come unless the Father draws you, but he draws all men. And some resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen said, how long will you continue? I'm sorry, Paul. Um, or Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, how long will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? You can resist God's grace. Because the grace of God that brings salvation, Titus chapter 2, uh, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, says that's our good God, amen? God is good. And all the time? Because that's his nature, amen? He is a good God. He's not some monstrosity I want to create most of humanity and predetermine them to eternal damnation and then blame it on them for eternity when they had no choice in it ultimately because I already predetermined it. That's not the God of the Bible. So this, the author of Hebrews, there is a response that we are to, we're responsible beings. 
The word responsible. Responsible. Response. Okay? Able. We're able to respond by the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men. We're without excuse if we reject him. Amen? And if we reject him, Romans chapter 1, it says they knew within themselves that the penalty is death. People that reject him know deep down in their inner person that there is a God and they're worthy of death and they need to repent. We have to resurrect their consciences, amen, through preaching the gospel and share the good news with them. So in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, therefore, holy who? Holy brethren. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you a what? An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So keep in mind, he's concerned about them defecting from the faith. Indeed, some already had. He's letting them know whatever you turn to is nothing close to Jesus. You're, you're just committing spiritual suicide. He's warning genuine believers of this reality. And he calls them holy brethren. And then he says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of, one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that what? Falls away from the living God. Okay? But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice that they haven't been hardened to the point of falling away yet, but his concern is that they'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? And fall away. Therefore, we encourage each other so our hearts don't get hard and fall away. Do you say to a non-believer at work, your non-believer boss that doesn't love Jesus and mocks him and, and is cheating on his wife, do you say, hey, you know, make sure your heart doesn't get hardened, brother? You know, holy brother or whatever, you know, so you don't fall away from the Lord. No, you don't talk to non-believers that way. This is to genuine believers. Amen? Let's just accept the scripture. And that's the danger. But verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast what? The beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And he's talking about ultimate or final salvation. Okay? We ultimately have Jesus in the end. If we hold fast, in fact, almost every exegete of Hebrews talks about the emphasis on final salvation in the book Hebrews to endure to the end. Our salvation is clear, nearer to us than we first believed, Paul said. That's Romans, okay, 14. Uh, Jesus said, he that endures the end shall be saved. Final salvation. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9, uh, 9 verse 27 and 28 says, the point of man wants to die, but after this ju- judgment, amen, he appeared the first time in reference to our sin, but the second time, He's coming back in reference to our salvation. It's somehow our final salvation. The author of Hebrews has that in goal. But, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, talks about uh, the just shall live by faith, but if he draws back, the justified one, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we're not of them that draw back to perdition, meaning there are them that did draw back to perdition, but those that believe unto the saving of the soul, future salvation. Are you with me? And that's how these texts make a lot of sense when you understand the context of the author of Hebrews. And that happens in a lot of New Testament letters, by the way. And we like to emphasize how we've been saved. We've been saved. We've been saved. But the, more often the word saved, when you see it, is in the presence and the future tense than it is in the past tense. Kind of interesting, huh? But I emphasize the past tense a lot too because praise God for our salvation. Amen? So, uh, very strong warning here. Amen? Oh, by the way, this doesn't fit into the theology of, for instance, Calvinism. Because it's like, wow, a true brother can harden his heart and not persevere to the end and perish. So guess what they do? Therefore, holy brethren, do you think they turned that into a non-believer? No, okay, it's too strong. But then when he's telling, then he says, take care, brethren. Do you think he's talking to a totally different group within the church or the same holy brethren? That's how anybody would understand that. But I've got John MacArthur's commentary on Hebrews. And when he gets to Hebrews chapter 4 or chapter 3, verse 12, he says, this is a different group of brethren. These guys don't know Jesus. I'm like, no, John, I'm sorry, John, you're wrong. Don't do that. You know you're wrong. Well, I don't know they know you're wrong. Okay. I'm like, but man, that's messed up. I'm like, because he doesn't want to be genuine believers to think that they can fall away. Yet right here, it's really clear that the brethren are the holy brethren. And by the way, these brethren... They aren't falling away yet. They're supposed to make sure they don't what? Harden their hearts through the deceitful sin and fall away from the living God. Are you with me? Context of Hebrews. Hebrews just destroys determinism. Okay? Absolutely. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 14. 414. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us what? 
hold fast our confession. There it is again. We're holding fast a confession. We already said this. He didn't say, hey, you guys aren't really saved, man. You guys think you are, you know, or just on the periphery. Get rid of that, man. Truly get saved. That's what I would be saying if I thought they were not. But I'd be, if you believe that they're believers that just need to persevere the faith, you'd say what? Hold fast your confession, which is what I preach all the time. Amen. Amen. And hopefully you share that with other believers because he's concerned. Look at verse seven. He again fixed a certain day saying through David after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your hearts. He wants them to hold fast their confession and not harden their hearts and then turn away from the living God by going back to like, I'm going to keep the Sabbath, man. I'm going to go back to the animal sacrifices. Many believe Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed. I'm going to go back to all that. No, stick to Jesus. He's the high priest. According, he's our high priest, the ultimate high priest. Untransferable priesthood, it says in Hebrews 7 according to the order of Melchizedek. And some believe Melchizedek was a pre-incarnation of Christ, like a Christophany. Others believe that he was, truly, he was a king and God had set that up as a picture of Messiah. I'm not going to get into that debate now. It's an interesting debate. I see strengths on both sides of that debate, actually. It's a very fascinating debate. But we know that Jesus is the Melchizedekian high priest. Amen? And praise God for that. So uh, we're, there's these just incredible uh, warnings that we have here and he talks about Hebrews 4.1, therefore let us fear. Let us fear. Notice the author of Hebrews. Do you think the author of Hebrews was a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. He puts himself in this warning. Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Powerful. Then you go to chapter five. We looked at, we read a lot of five already with Melchizedek and priesthood. Then you, we read the end of chapter five as well, where it talks about what? Your babes. And babes need to grow. Because if your baby is not growing and you're just on baby food, and praise God for babies. We love babies, amen? Most beautiful people on the planet are the babies, amen? That's why we're so pro-life, amen? You know what? When you look at the little babies, they're feeding, they're growing, but if they stay only on baby food, and they don't get beyond baby food, they're not going to grow and be nourished the way they ought to be. Eventually, they're going to need a nice big tri-tip or steak or something, right? You know? And uh, to really grow, they're going to need some meat. So he doesn't want them to stay there because they're not, not, he's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking about babes, okay? Again, the context of Hebrews, right? These are babes that just simply need to grow and keep the confession of their faith, but now add to it beyond the ABCs of Christianity, which he defines as like the resurrection of the dead and so forth. So in chapter six, which we began to read about not, you know, reestablishing the foundation, but just growing, then he warns them. Verse four, for in the case of those who have once been what? Enlightened. Wow. Once been enlightened, okay, and have tasted the heavenly gift. Who's the heavenly gift? Jesus, amen. And by the way, some say, well, tasted there doesn't mean they experienced Jesus. It just means that they might have nibbled him. No, that's not what the metaphor means. You know how I know the metaphor doesn't mean just nibble? Because Jesus, the same Greek word is used in Hebrews chapter 2. It says Jesus tasted death for everyone. Did Jesus just nibble at death? No, he experienced death, amen? And these guys experienced Jesus, okay? Because keep in mind, they're partakers of the holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. They're participants in the heavenly calling, amen? They've tasted, experienced Jesus. They've been enlightened, and they have been made partakers of the what? Holy Spirit. By the way, that Greek word, metekos, tekos is the same Greek word that's used in Hebrews chapter 3. I have to look at the Greek word, but I've done it before. Hebrews chapter 3 where it says partakers of the heavenly calling. Just like they're partakers of the heavenly calling, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Bible says the natural man receives not the things of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Jesus said that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Is this talking about worldly people or is this talking about Christians? Obviously Christians. Non-believers don't have the Holy Spirit. And I've tasted the good word of God. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end in chapter 3 at the beginning, taste and see that the word of God, taste and see that the word of God is good, right? And, and have salvation. It's tasting the word is tantamount to uh, having salvation. They've experienced uh, the word of God. Verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. Okay? Names probably written in the book of life. 
I don't doubt that, but I'm not saying that. What I'm saying when I say probably, I'm not sure he's meaning specifically that. It's hard to know specifically what he means, but they've tasted the power of the age to come. They've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection power of Christ in their lives. Now, it's interesting. It says, and then have what? Verse 6. And then have what? Then have fallen away. This isn't hypothetical, guys, at this point, is it at all? It's not if, if. It's and then have fallen away. It's talking about those who had all these experiences and then have fallen away. Okay? It already happened with some. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So this is talking about those who have fallen away, just rejected Jesus as their high priest, rejected the Messiah after having received the Holy Spirit and and after experiencing Jesus and having these experiences. Then they just fall away. Then it says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because God won't accept them back? No. When someone falls away, later to see in church, Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, right, and opens to me, I'll come and sup with him and he with me. Now that's in the context, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Which is in, Hebrew, in Revelation 3. That, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, is in Hebrews chapter 12, that same quote of children and how he deals with us as children. And we're not to harden our hearts. Remember, you can get, as babes, as children, you can harden your heart, not want to hear from daddy anymore, and then he disciplines us. And as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline or chasten that we may as, as obey the father of spirits. That's our spiritual life. Amen? That we repent, that we get right. Because it says, so we be partakers of his holiness. Then it says, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we're either going to continue in our sanctification and grow in him, or we're going to harden our hearts and resist him. But he's dealing with, he says, I deal with you. He deals with us as children, Hebrews chapter 12. Not professing believers that aren't truly children. That's the emphasis there. And what's going on in Revelation chapter 3? He's knocking on the hearts of those who've been disciplined but aren't responding. And he doesn't, because you can get to the point when you fall away. Because he says here in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 that don't harden your heart. We don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the voice of the Holy Spirit is still there while you're hardening your heart. So some teach, oh, you just fall away, you can't come back. No, that's not what he's saying. There's all kinds of scriptures that talk about people fall away then came back, right? In in Galatians chapter 3, it talks about how you can be, uh, restore someone who's fallen. Galatians chapter 6, I'm sorry, the first few verses. And Paul says he labors again that Christ would be formed in them again because they were going back to Judaism and the law. Some of them had, not all of them. And you see this where the prodigal son, he comes back. Luke 15, my son was lost, but now he's found. He was what? Dead, but now he's alive. Right? James 5, 19, 20. Brethren, if any of you turn away from the faith or the truth and one converts him back, He'll save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Romans chapter 11, those who rejected Christ and didn't believe in him, even though they saw all these miracles and everything, the Jews that saw all these miracles, and then they're broken off because of unbelief. It says if they don't continue in their unbelief, they can come back what? And be what? Grafted in back again. So we know that's the teaching throughout scripture. In fact, it's a teaching right here in the book of Hebrews that uh, the God's voice continues to call. But you can harden your heart to such a degree and stick your feet in the ground against Jesus and say, no, I don't want anything to do with him. And harden your heart so hard that there's no remedy because you, will, you refuse to come back. Because you've just hardened your heart so much. And a lot of people think, oh, maybe I'll come back. I'm kind of back and I'll come back later. And then they get to the point like, a, like the groove in a radio, and we don't have records anymore, but where this thing just becomes so callous to where you won't respond anymore. And it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. It tells you why. Because they crucify the Son of God afresh. Because you, in your mind, and by the way, you can't crucify Christ afresh unless you're saved first. Why? Because Paul talks about how I'm dead or crucified to the world and the world's crucified to me, Amen. So we come to Christ, we die the old man, we become alive to Jesus, amen? And the world's crucified us and we're crucified to the world. But when we go back to the world, we crucify Christ afresh. He becomes dead to us, okay? So this is a very, very strong warning that if you fall away, there may be, it's very likely it happens with some people, it's very likely for certain people that you'll never hear God's voice again and come back. You can't think, oh, I'll just come back later. Oh, when things get really heavy, man, you know, I don't love the truth right now, but man, when I see the Antichrist, man, and temples being real, well, the Bible says, 
If those that don't love the truth, they'll be given a strong delusion to believe the lie. You're just setting yourself up for eternal damnation. Hold fast your confession. Don't resist the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting here it says in verse 6, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who, for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, but, it yields thor- but if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being what? Cursed and in the end it is what? Ends up what? Being burned. That's, that's fiery judgment that we read about in Hebrews 10 as well. It's just heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. Now, the people that he's writing to are saved, but there's people that fall away that aren't saved anymore. In fact, look at verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany what? Salvation, though we are speaking in this way. I mean, I'm confident. He's seen them go through a lot of tribulations and endure, he says in Hebrews 10. So his confidence that they're going to hold on. But guess what? It's a pastoral warning from the Holy Spirit. Because corporately they're going to, but who knows how many of them among them might fall away. He gives them these strong warnings. Very, very strong warnings. Now, it's interesting uh, when you look at this because even uh, when you consider the language that's being used there, how can you look at verses 4 through 4 and 5, right? And say, oh, that's not believers, even though they'd receive the Holy Spirit. Even though... It's, he's warning believers who are considered babes in Christ that need to grow. That's the whole context. He's not warning non-believers. He's warning those who are what? Babes in Christ. That they're not to fall away. That's, so you wouldn't reference somebody who was never saved if you're talking to those who are babes. You'd reference someone else who had been at least a babe, right? That would be your example. That's the whole context here. But many of our Calvinistic brethren, and I call them Calvinist brethren because I do believe there are many Calvinists that love Jesus. I have no doubt about it. You know, I have friends from long past that love Jesus are Calvinist, you know? But many of them, well, they'll look at this text and they'll say, well, these guys, these, it's not really describing salvation because they don't want to believe a saved person could fall away. But you have to go with the text. In fact, Spurgeon chided his fellow Calvinists for not admitting that these are saved people. In fact, listen to what, what John, I'm sorry, John, Charles Spurgeon the most popular of all Calvinists, besides Calvin himself, who wasn't a Calvinist because he seems to believe that Jesus died for everyone, but he was, the other four points you could derive from him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers by Calvinists, argued uh, long ago in a very, very powerful way that Hebrews 6 is definitely talking about Christians. He says, first then, we answer the question, who are the people here spoken of? This is Spurgeon. If you read Dr. Gill, Dr. Owen, and Dr. Gill's, if you look for online commentaries, you often see Gill, you know, and Owen, very popular Calvinist. And almost all the eminent Calvinist writers, this is, again, Spurgeon, they all of them assert that these persons are not Christians. They say that enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. Now, it strikes me that they would not have said this if they had not had some doctrine to uphold. Now, keep in mind, he's a Calvinist too. But he says they would never say that if they weren't trying to protect Calvinism. He says, now this is interesting. Now, it strikes me that they would not have said this if they had not had some doctrine to uphold for a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by this must be Christians. Even a child could see that, he's saying, If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he would have used more explicit terms than the ones that are used here. In other words, how do you describe a Christian even better than someone who's received the Holy Spirit and experienced Jesus and so forth, right? That Spurgeon goes on to say, how can a man be said to be enlightened and to taste the heavenly gift and to be made a partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God? With all deference to these learned doctors, and I admire and love them all, I humbly conceive that they allowed their judgments to be a little warped, and that they, when they had said that, and I think I shall be able to show that none of none but true believers are here described. Well, how does Spurgeon get out of this then, right? Because Spurgeon doesn't believe you can forfeit your salvation. He believes you're born again. You're going to persevere. So how does he get around it? Well, he points out, he says, in verse 6, it says, since it says, you know, uh, verse 6, and if they fall away. It's an if, so it's hypothetical. Is there an if in your verse, verse 6, for anybody? Okay. If you have a couple translations, I'll put if there. Spurgeon's translation had if there. 
By the way, I did a whole podcast with Chad where I show all kinds of different ways that Calvinism has influenced the King James Bible, okay? And by the way, there's no if in the Greek. It's not if they fall away. In fact, there's one Greek word translated four or five English words as peripasantos. And peripasantos in the Greek is in the aorist tense. That means past tense, having fallen away. It's talking about those who have fallen away. It's very, very clear. Having fallen away. So Spurgeon is right. Yes, you're, yeah, I, amen. Mr. Spurgeon, I totally, yeah, they're definitely saved people. But when he says, if they fall away, he didn't know Greek, okay? And he bargained, he built his whole case around the little word if, which isn't in the Greek. It speaks of those not if, but having had those who had indeed fallen away. There no longer remains. I mean, so, uh, and you know, other Calvinists had pointed that out. Uh, R.T. Kendall wrote a book called What Saved, Always Saved, who spent years in Spurgeon's pulpit because he inherited that, that metropolitan tabernacle. And he wrote a whole book, whole book, What Saved, Always Saved, and he points out that Spurgeon didn't know Greek and he just used the word if here and, and he built his whole case around that and it's actually talking about those who did fall away. And Kendall's right on that. Although Kendall wants to say, but they're just going to lose rewards. Ooh, that's not what I continue to read. <laughs> not just rewards. So it's another, they always try to find a way out. It's crazy, man. Craziness. So we have these strong, strong warnings uh, that you can truly, there have been those who have fallen away. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, let's go there really quickly. Verse 26. For if we, for if we, who's we? Believers. Believers. Is the author a Christian? He's including himself in this warning. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a what? sacrifice for sins we no longer have it's not just a lost rewards you no longer have jesus as sacrifice but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries we're talking about judgment that begins with fire on the day of the lord and goes into all eternity verse 8 anyone who has set aside the law of moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses in other words man in the old testament you'd get be stoned to death but just as Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Amen? So the judgment is more severe now because you've sinned against greater light and great, such a great salvation. Verse 29, how much severe punishment? I mean, can you imagine being stoned to death? Then he's saying it's even worse than being stoned to death. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And he's saying we, only addressing believers, not non-believers here. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he what? was sanctified okay that word sanctified is used for salvation in fact most uh most exegetes most commentators on the book of hebrews will point out that the word sanctification as it's used in hebrews 10 is talking about not progressively becoming more like jesus but it's talking about salvation itself and yeah and when you've been sanctified by the blood they, it says they were sanctified right past tense by the way some say well maybe this perspective or they thought they were no it's Aorist tense, they were sanctified. And by the way, it's in the passive, not the middle, meaning they were sanctified by someone else. And it was by God through the blood of Christ. And has insulted the spirit of grace. Verse 30, for we know him who uh, said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? Non-believers who are fake Christians. Is that what it says? No, he will judge his people, guys. This is serious, man. How serious? Verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. Verse 32. But remember the former days when after having been what? Enlightened. How does he describe their salvation? Having been what? Enlightened. The same thing he describes in Hebrews chapter 6 of those who fell away. Checkmate. Okay. (laughs) But remember the former days when after being enlightened that you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Verse 33. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence. Amen? Amen. It's those who have confidence, and it's a good confidence. Just keep it. Which, is, which has great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of what? Endurance. You don't have need of coming to Jesus for the first time. You have need of endurance in the salvation you already have. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet a, little, a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, or the King James has it good well, the just, those who have been justified by the blood of Christ, my righteous one shall live by faith. It's not just a one-time experience. They shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39. But we are not of those who, what? 
shrink back to destruction. In other words, there are those who have, Hebrews 6, shrunk back to destruction after receiving the Holy Spirit and being enlightened and experiencing Jesus. But we're not of those because guess what? These folks have endured all this persecution. And he sees, you know what? It looks like you're going to stay on the path. We're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who what? Have faith to the preserving of the soul. They continue to hold their faith into the salvation of their soul, final salvation. Biblical, biblically balanced Christian teaching is that we have been saved, okay? We're being saved, it says. Paul uses that as well, being transformed, sanctified, and so forth, and we shall ultimately be saved. He that endures the end, Jesus said, will be saved, amen? We're not in heaven yet. Don't act like you can just do whatever you want and reject God. In fact, he says in Hebrews chapter 13, he warns, and I'll say these couple of points in conclusion, Go to Hebrews 13, 17, because they're thinking of defecting some of them from the faith, and they're seeking, well, he says in verse 17, obey your what? Your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So right now you have maybe some rebellion in that church, even though he has confidence that church as a whole is going to make it, but there's those who are mm, not, not following leadership anymore, doing their own thing. Then go to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 23, right before he warns that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only fearful looking for a fire and indignation which will devour the adversaries. Right before he says that, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us what? Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for your promise is faithful. Is this sounding familiar? That's the message, man. Hold fast your, fast your hope. Verse 24, and let us consider how to what? Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Brothers and sisters, on a practical level, because people are going to fall away and have fallen away, and we have all kinds of heresies in the churches now, we need to encourage one another. Amen? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, he says, see to it that there not be in any of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The very next verse, what does he say? But encourage one another day after day. That's in Hebrews 3. And here's what he's saying. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Are you doing that to your brothers and sisters? You need to make sure you're holding fast to Jesus, recognize there's no one else, there's salvation, and no one else but him, amen, and that you're pursuing him and recognize that falling away is real because if you don't believe it's real, you could truly fall away. Man, take heed when you stand, Paul says, lest you what? Fall. And when Peter didn't think he could fall away, well, once I'm in, I'm always in. Guess what? He had a huge fall. We need to heed these warnings, take them seriously, persevere, cling to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, consider the author in the finish of our faith, Jesus fixing our eyes on him, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Don't just watch your own walk. Are you, you need to be encouraging your brothers and sisters, sending them scriptures, sharing scripture with them. When they're down and out, you know, reaching out to them, loving them. Verse 25, then there's another problem. Not forsaking what? Our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you say, the day draw near. And the habit of some, that could be those in Hebrews 6 who weren't following him anymore. Amen? You want to make sure you're in fellowship because it's only in fellowship that you can what? Encourage one another in the faith. Amen? That's why I encourage you to be here, man. We have a Wednesday night fellowship. And praise God, we get in the word just like now. We're here for you. We have other Bible studies, beautiful Bible studies, men's studies, women's studies throughout the week, all kinds of wonderful things going on. Avail yourselves of them. Encourage one another. Amen? I love you guys. And... You know what? It's like, if you're visiting today, we had church today. Amen? And that's what we do here, man. We get in his word. Not the word of Joe. That means zero. We get in the word of God. Amen? It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's strong. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Praise you, Father, for your word. Let's hold fast to his word. Recognize what the scriptures clearly say. And guess what? I preach the way I preach because guess what? The doctrines that I've come against are growing in the church today. And it's leading to more and more apostasy. That's why I must stamp it out. And I pray that you jump on board. And you say, this is the true salvation that's warned about in scripture. Let's hold fast to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Praise God. Give him glory. Amen. We love you, Lord God. We praise your holy name. Hallelujah. Father, continue to sanctify us and strengthen us and help us to be obedient. Help us to hold fast our confession, faithful to the end in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Can we all please stand? Praise God. We have an awesome God, you guys.